You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. And on today's show, I am actually going to be joined by a co-host, Benjamin Caffrey. One of the things that Benji does for us at BNF is keep an eye on innovation and lead some of our work there. That then brings us to the Pioneers Awards. If you want to find out more about the Pioneers, we actually have information on the BNF website. It's bnef.com forward slash pioneers. But let's give you a little bit more context here on the show. Instead of having me do it, let's go straight to our conversation with Benji. Benji, thank you for joining us on Switched On today. Hi, Dana. Thanks for inviting me. I want to ask you, first of all, about how BNF approaches innovation, which is through our Pioneers program. Can you explain what the Pioneers are? Yeah, well, thank you, Dana. So um, it's great to be here and great to dedicate a podcast for our Pioneers program. BNF Pioneers program is really our way to celebrate, recognize and learn from exciting, innovative startup in the climate tech area that help our world to transform into a lower carbon economy. So each year we try and take this wide world of clean tech innovation and actually focus it in on a couple of themes so that the different companies that we're looking at and that the winners really reflect areas that we think are actually really really in need of innovation for the energy transition. So what theme are we going to drill into today? And perhaps you can also give us a little more detail on, well, just maybe a highlight of what the other themes were in the Pioneers for the 2023 winners. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, so so that's true. Every, every year we try and focus on unsolved climate innovation gaps. So we choose three um, of the themes and then we have a fourth category, which is um, a wild card. So we, we, are, we like to be surprised with exciting other climate tech innovators out there that, that apply. The theme for, um, for this year were um, accelerating the deployment of clean hydrogen. So um, not only on the electrolyzer side of things, but also looking across the whole value chain uh, of hydrogen and where innovation comes from. The second one, which was really the topic of today, was around sustainable metals and materials for an electrified future. So really looking not only at how to make mining more sustainable, but also how to secure enough supply for the transition. So analysis show um, that basically in order to get to net zero, we need five times more of the current supply. So a, a big challenge, and then we need to do it in a less carbon intensive and and then the third one um, was about decarbonization of food system. 
So, Benji, you and I have been with BNEF for some time now, and I believe that you were involved with the Pioneers from the very beginning. So give us a little bit of a history lesson on the Pioneers. How long have we been doing this? So I think one of the unique things about Pioneers from BNF point of view is that we have been doing it for a while. We have been doing it for 13 years now. And we've been through um, the first kind of clean tech uh, 1.0, um, you know, hype and bust and the evolution of the innovation emerging every year. And we have close to 150 um, pioneers, winners, alumni. And actually, um, in- interesting fact, most of them have been very successful. So we have around 40% of them that had exits, either through IPOs or M&A. And then um, close to this uh, same ratio of ventures still going. So I've actually only been lucky enough to be involved for the past two years as one of the many judges that actually look at all the applicants. But I think it would be useful for our listeners to better understand the sort of companies that we're assessing and looking for in terms of really size and how disruptive their technology could potentially be for the energy transition. So for us, I mean, the criteria of the pioneers is to first look at who's original and what's kind of innovative about what they do. And we are not investors, so we have the luxury to really pick what's interesting. And we are, we have the other luxury of relying on them, our amazing expertise and colleagues around the world and just be able to focus on, on what's cool and interesting. The second criteria is really around the impact they will have on um, on the transition to a lower carbon economy and net zero and a lower carbon world. And the third, they do need to have some positive momentum. So um, basically, we need to know that they are able to take their original innovative ideas and with a potential of impact, but actually um, help fulfill that potential. So these are kind of the three criteria we focus on. And with that, let's jump into our conversations with the winners of the challenge around metals and materials. We'll first start with a mining innovator named Jetty, and then we'll next go to a battery innovator called EnthCycle, followed by another battery innovator, LiCycle. Let's hear from our first guest, Mike Outwin, the co-founder and CEO of Jetty. Jetty are a natural resources company that have developed a catalyst that can efficiently release copper from lower grade ore, increasing a mine's production for one of the most in-demand and essential metals for the energy transition. Hi, Mike. Hi, Benji. I want to kick off with a personal question, kind of what what brings you to um, Jetty and the industry? I know you were on the investment side before. What's your story? Well, I'll actually take everything back to, to 2008. I started working at a energy technology startup that year while I was still in school. They had developed a, a process to turn low-grade coal and biomass into natural gas while capturing a pure stream of CO2 for, for sequestration. And the CEO, who is my co-founder at Jetty now, Andrew Perlman, he also had a, a venture creation firm, which was responsible for creating some of the, the leading clean tech 1.0 companies, spanning areas like geothermal, biofuels, water desalination. And so I actually spent half my time working to support those companies and, and finding pain points and, and ideas to start new ones. And then you know the other half working at the energy technology startup. So I found myself at a really interesting intersection of advanced technology development 
the natural resources industry, entrepreneurialism, venture capital. And, you know, some really interesting things took place in those first couple of years at the startup and, and the venture firm that that really underlie why Jetty exists today, why I find myself do, doing what I do, leading the company, you know, many years later. And so, you know, in the first month that I was at the, the energy technology startup, which was turning coal to gas, and, and I mentioned biomass earlier. And natural gas at that point was at all-time highs. So $13 per MBTU. The company was on a rocket ship backed by top top investors like Kleiner Perkins, Coastal Ventures, top strategic partners like Dow Chemical. But within two years, gas had fallen to around $2.50 per MBTU. So what, what happened? Um, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling had matured as technologies and opened up an extraordinary new resource in shale formations across the U.S. So let's just say it was, a, it was a little bit of a surprise. You know, we were a bit blindsided. And the result is that I, I was inspired along with my, my co-founder to be the one surprising the natural resources industry the next time as opposed to being on, on the receiving end. And this, the second major event that I'd say impacted my thinking was, was how the first clean tech wave played out. Uh, it was pretty apparent after a couple of years that CapEx intensive technologies funded by VCs just couldn't get off the ground in the way people had expected. Plants that cost billions of dollars to build using brand new technologies and played out for the first time, it, it just wasn't going to make it. And so we, my co-founder and I, we agreed that any company we built in the space in the future had to be ultra capitalized had to leverage existing infrastructure, had to be simple enough and not if it disrupt existing flow sheets so that there was, there was a high likelihood of it actually being accepted. We, we thought those were hurdles that we had to get over to, to have you know, any success again, deploying advanced technology into the natural resources sector. So you know, with all that perspective, I went out in search of some major pay points facing the natural resources sector. And, and eventually I found the charcoal pirate problem in the copper mining industry. And the, the background on this problem is that 70% of the world's remaining copper resources are trapped in and or inaccessible to existing technology. So trillions of dollars worth of copper. And I said, hmm, yeah, I, I think that may be big enough. We were very, very oriented by, by market size back then in terms of you know, starting companies. And that, that seemed like a big enough pain point for us to go after. The, you know, the industry had been trying to solve this problem for, for decades without any luck. So maybe it was a little audacious for, for us to think that we could, but nonetheless, we forged forward with it. So I, I sold my you know, now co-founder on, on the idea. We went out and supported various projects, sponsored research at universities. We were trying to develop a, a method for extracting copper from that charcoal pyrite that trapped ore plaguing the industry. And all the initial attempts failed. We spent a couple of years sponsoring this research. We just couldn't get anything to work. There was always a fatal flaw. We considered walking away, but I, you know, I reached out. My, my co-founder actually pushed me to reach out to this one last professor at the University of British Columbia, who had a, a top materials engineering department, and they'd been working in this area of charcoal pirate leaching. And so I reached out to the professor, and he had a postdoc on his team, a gentleman by the name of Ahmed Garaman, who's now the CEO of Cyclic Materials. And he had recently made some really intriguing scientific observations running tests. And, and, and during this time, you know, he had developed the world's longest nanowire from charcoal pyrite, this he was creating thin film solar cells out of chalcopyrite. So he really, really knew chalcopyrite. And in one of his experiments, he, he actually identified this family of compounds that appeared to, to have a catalytic effect on the chalcopyrite, causing 10x more copper to, to exit the mineral than without those compounds. So he said, hmm, this, this, this is something pretty interesting. I haven't seen this before. Maybe there's something we could do with it. And so at that point, we wanted to see if we could actually develop a technology out of the science. 
clients. And so we created a, a collaborative development agreement with the University of British Columbia. And by the summer of 2014, so you know, heading towards 10 years ago, the results were looking promising enough and we hadn't found any fatal flaws, which we'd ran into before. And so we thought we could justify actually raising capital. And um, we incorporated Jetty and we secured the funding. And we've taken everything that we learned from those early startups that were in the portfolio, all those clean tech 1.0 startups, all the, the failures, the successes, you know, how, how to construct them the best, how to put fantastic teams around them, protect your intellectual property, make things simple and have low CapEx. All of that went into Jetty. So Jetty, Jetty truly had a massive leg up. And so that's that's how I found myself in the copper sector, building a, a, a technology company that, that can really disrupt it. You know, we at BNEF, we definitely look at metals and future demand. And copper is one of those that you can find in wind, solar, batteries, grids. It's a critical commodity for the energy transition, but mining activities are also polluting. So in addition to increasing the accessibility of this important metal, can you also talk a little bit more about the problem that Jetty's also able to solve when it comes to pollution and emissions? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll actually cover that in, in, in two parts. I think one of the, what, what's the problem that we're trying to solve as a company? I think that's unlocking these vast strain and copper resources that, that are needed for, you know, an, an increasingly electrified future. Um, that's the vision for the company. Fundamentally, as you mentioned, we believe that the world needs more copper to handle the, the expected surge and demand from clean energy technologies, you know, that'll drive decarbonization. Just going further into the angle you were, you were pursuing there, a three megawatt wind turbine can use up to 4.7 tons of copper. An EV requires 2.5 times more copper than a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. And in fact, I think Bloomberg NEF forecasts that copper demand is going to grow by 53% from now until 2040, but the supply is only projected to rise by 16%. So there's a huge structural shortage that's forming. And although it's going to take you know many solutions, we believe Jetty's the industry's best hope right now to deliver the supply that's needed to bridge that gap in the cleanest way. And that, that's where I'll pivot into talking about specifically what we do why why we believe we're truly producing clean copper. So there's all that trapped material that I've mentioned before, that 70% of the world's remaining copper contained in, in, in ore that's inaccessible. And so what happens at these mines is that extraordinary amount of material is, is mined. It's, it's blasted in the pit, put into a truck, Diesel's expended navigating out of the pit, moving it to a big waste pile. It's loaded into that waste pile. And then if you're not leaching it, if you're not actually getting any copper out of it, it's left there and it's an environmental liability. And so many companies, uh, certainly the companies that, that we work with, manage the, these waste piles very diligently and ensure that they're not environmental liabilities. But I think what, what Jetty does is it puts a lot of focus on these waste streams because we're turning them into revenue streams. And so it, it, it allows us to improve, I think, the management of these waste piles. But also, if you think about this material, it's getting mined anyways. It's oftentimes in the, in the way of higher grade or that's going to go to a concentrator. And, and so what we're doing is actually changing the denominator where for all the emissions that are already being spent, all the water consumption that's already happening at these mines, we're increasing the copper production. And so we're driving down the uh, emissions profile, water consumption profile for the entire asset. We're effectively transitioning it into being a cleaner asset as a result of the technology's presence. 
Also, one thing I note is that we're a hydrometallurgical technology. Our, our catalyst bolts onto a system that is, is run by solution coming into contact with a big pile of ore, as opposed to a pyrometallurgical process, which is using extreme heat and chemicals and um, to break down and, and crushing and grinding and milling of ore and uh, smelting in order to produce the copper. In the hydrometallurgical world, we use a microbial system that's existed for 3 billion years, lithotrophs and, and acidophiles that metabolize the iron and copper and sulfur that's in the ore to release the copper. We, we use these solutions that are produced by the ore naturally to run that process. And then all the copper that's exiting the heap is solubilized and it goes into a solvent extraction and electro-winning process where over a week a week's time, you, you plate the copper in these in these pools. And then you have your 99.999% pure copper product that can be sold to the market to, to, to go into chips and electronics and whatnot. And so we really think that we're, we're a linchpin for allowing the industry to le leverage this very low capital and operating cost technology to also bring about this clean copper production in, in a way that the industry hasn't seen before. So I think those are some of the ways that we're doing it better than has been done previously. And we're, we're, we're helping our, our partners be better stewards of the resources that they're entrusted to process. Mike, where, where are you on the kind of scaling and commercialization journey? Is this actually happening on the ground with real clients? It is. It is right now. We have two commercial operations that have been running for years in, in Arizona, in the US. And at the first one, we were able to double the amount of copper production within one year that was coming out of a, a, an area under leach at that site, a 300 million ton stockpile. And so starting back in 2020, we, we had proven to, to the industry that for the first time, after decades of investigation by the industry, it was proven that you, you could actually extract copper from this stranded ore. It was possible. And so with that, we, we were able to attract interest and investment from some of the world's biggest mining companies such as BHP, Freeport Mac brand, tech companies such as BMW and, and, and Mitsubishi began, became some supporters of the company as investors. And so we, we very much are commercial. We're building our third commercial operation right now in, in, in the north of Chile. This site is going to produce just around 10 times more copper than either of our first operations have. And, and then there's a pipeline of, of 20 additional projects behind that. So Jet Jetty is, is a proven commercial technology that is starting to make an impact right now on the industry. How exposed are you to the commodity side of things? Is there a price of copper that under which it doesn't make sense for you um, to operate? Well, you can look at higher metallurgy and, and, and leaching as really the low cost op option for the industry to produce copper. Normally at a big mine, you have two different sides. You've got the concentrator, the pyrometallurgy, where you you mill the rocks down into, into micron size and then put them in a chemical bath and apply heat and, and you're able to create this concentrate that then gets shipped to a smelter, um, normally in Asia. And so that's the higher cost approach. It, it's justified because they're usually working on higher grade ore. There's more copper in you know a ton of ore than in the lower grade material that, that oftentimes goes to the waste stockpile or, or if there's enough copper in it to the leach stockpile. And over there, you're really just using this acid solution and, 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 and water and the microbes do a lot of the work for you. You know, you, you're able to leverage this already existing biological system that, that that's there. And so leaching produces this copper cathode 
at the end. And it's oftentimes at half the operating cost as, as the pyrometallurgical side. And so we we benefit, we think, in, in all parts of a cycle. If the copper prices go high, people want to produce just more, more, more. And so they're going to push to do more projects as, as they can or to pump as much copper production out of the site as, as they can. So they're going to put the foot on the accelerator for our leaching projects there. And then in, in lower copper price environments, and we experienced this a couple of years ago, actually, um, we, we've been operating since 2019 commercially. So we, we've been through highs and lows of, of copper price. And what we saw when copper price plummeted is that there was a significant increased interest on behalf of the miner to ratchet up production from the leach side because, well, that's lower cost copper. You've got better margins and they'll pull back a little bit on the concentrator. So we think we we're very, very, very well positioned to participate in, in, in any part of the cycle, really. And what, what's your plan for the future? It's really focused on additional rollout of the technology at some of the world's largest mines over the next couple of years. As I mentioned before, we've got this very strong pipeline of opportunities that we're transitioning into project phase right now. We we have a, a couple very large mines that, that we've been testing with for quite some time. One of them is, is, is Escondida, owned by BHP, the world's largest copper mine. We feel like you know our technology has the potential to, to make a, a real impact there and at many other large mines. So we are in execution mode as a company. We're looking at delivering these high quality projects for our partners and have a real impact at their sites to drive down their costs and be able to bring about, and I mentioned this before, be able to bring about you know, a mine's worth of copper production from an already existing asset so that the industry has less of a need to do the exploration to find new mines to better use the resources that we already have. We, we think we're a real facilitator of resource maximization. So we are an execution commercial project-oriented company right now, and we want to do it at the, the most significant level as we can. So that that's what you can expect to see from, from us for the next years playing this role as a linchpin for the industry to bring about that that needed copper production. Mike, thank you very much for telling us a bit more about Jetty, your technology, and how you're unlocking the availability of copper for so many industries that rely on this really important metal. You're welcome, Dana. Now let's hear from our next guest, Megan O'Connor, the co-founder and CEO of EnthCycle. EnthCycle's metal refining technology transforms feedstocks, including scrap, ore, and end-of-life electronics into high-purity, critical metals in their modular, commercial-scale electro-extraction unit called the Oyster. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. Well, Megan, I want to know a little bit more about you. So talk a little bit about really how you came to this industry. And let's let's talk about you before we talk about the technology and the business. Sure, sure. So I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Encycle. We started the company back in 2017. And really the, the history of the company and how we came to this idea, because I'm a first-time founder, so I was in academia before this, actually. Um, I was getting my PhD when I met my co-founder, Chad Vesitas, who was a full-time professor at Harvard at the time. And he had developed this really cool technology that's now at the core of what we do at Encycle. But he had developed it for a completely different application in wastewater treatment. And and it was all luck, I think, that I saw him just giving a talk on the technology. And I thought, wow, this is really cool how he's thought to combine these age-old processes from, from the chemical industry for this application, but didn't really think much else of it at the time. 
A few months later, I found myself at this event called the Green Electronics Summit at the university I was at. And it was a professor who had been able to invite really the leads in the consumer electronics industry. I think like Apple and Dell and, and all these companies who are trying to be really green and transparent with their supply chains. And so they were all at this event talking about the sustainability issues they saw coming down the road you know, over the next five to 10 years. And this was back in, in 2014, 2015. So it was, it was over 10 years ago or almost 10 years ago now, I should say. And, you know, I fought my way into that room because students weren't, uh, <laughs> was not open to, to students. And so I begged my way in and they finally let me be the tribe for nine hours so taking notes for nine hours. But it, it was so worth doing that because over and over again in that room, I kept hearing the same two themes, the same two problems from every company that spoke. The first one was waste management. All of these companies are producing, whether it's laptops or cell phones or, or some type of consumer electronic device. And they were all worried about what was going to happen with all these devices once they reached their end of life, right? We don't have a waste management solution. Right now, our solution is to collect everything and then ship it overseas, either to be landfilled or quote unquote recycled in some capacity. And the second theme I heard was these folks were worried about supply chain, right? They all use cobalt and nickel, these critical minerals that I think a lot of people hear but might not know what they are. And these are really like the building blocks of the clean energy economy. And they were worried about the small amounts that they use in these consumer electronics. And they said, imagine a world 10 years from now when hopefully electric vehicles will be um, much more abundant on the road and they use orders of magnitude more of these metals. And they're not the only technology that do, right? We have wind turbines that use these metals, different critical minerals, I say, but in the same category, we have solar panels. And where are we going to get all these materials from when there's already an issue with supply chain and we're not even really building any of this technology yet? And so I walked out of that room feeling pretty inspired to actually completely change my PhD project. So I was not working in the critical mineral space at all, but to try and figure out a way to sort of solve these two issues uh, at the same time with developing a way to refine end-of-life materials like end-of-life batteries to turn them into the materials that we need, right, to create a much more robust, sustainable supply chain here domestically and within the Western world in general, because we all face the same issues over here. And so I walked up into my PhD uh, advisor's office and I asked her if I could switch my project, thinking back to Chad's technology, so to bring it back to Chad. Um, and I said, Chad, I wonder if this technology could work for metal refining. And he said he, th he thought it could, um, and he was happy for me to work on it. And so that's what I did for the next three years. We co-developed it and that's what I wrote my dissertation on. And then we got to the end of that journey and I graduated. And then the next day I started the company because I felt like there was so much potential and need for innovation in the critical minerals refining space, which is really where we sit. Wow, that, that's amazing. So tell us a bit more about how do we recycle batteries today and kind of about how unique your solution is? What, what are you doing that is different? Absolutely. So if you look at the world of refining, we, we call ourselves a metal refining company because really all material is pretty much refined in the same way, whether it's end of life materials like a spent lithium ion battery. And even if you look at the front end of the value chain and how we pull metals out of the ground with mining and refine them, it's actually very similar processes in which both of these either end of life or beginning of life materials are processed. And especially in the Western world, typically what happens is they are collected by, you know, quote unquote recyclers. So these are just folks on the logistics side who have various channels to, to collect these materials. They might shred them down to make them less hazardous to be able to ship them really overseas or at least very far distances. We don't have much refining capacity here at least in the U.S. So it's typically shipped overseas to be smelted into intermediate materials. So smelting, if folks don't know out there, it's think of it like a large furnace. It's very high temperature, high pressure to really thermally separate out a lot of these metals. And then it typically goes through a what I call final 
refining step, which is called hydrometallurgy, which is a fancy word to say they use a lot of chemicals and solvents to purify the metals into their purest form that we sell it as. And so as you can tell from just that description, it's a very long process to, to get these materials into a usable form and that these materials are shipped across the world several times. And so what Encycle, when we looked at the supply chain, we said, okay, if our goal as a company and our vision is to get as much of these materials into circulation as possible, A, where can we pull them from, right? Recycling is one avenue but mining more of them, but in a sustainable way is another. And so we wanted to build essentially what a smelter does, which is take all of this different type of material, but do it in a much more sustainable and localized way. So instead of having to build a large centralized facility and ship all of your materials, regardless of what they are to that centralized facility, we wanted to develop a modular system that could actually go on site with wherever these batteries are or at a mining site so that you don't have to worry about the cost of shipping these because that's usually a huge barrier to actually getting these materials refined and anything usable. Uh, and then the environmental, the carbon that is associated with all that shipping around the world several times. And so that's really how we've changed the way that not just battery recycling, because I would say a lot of the battery recyclers out there, you know, quote unquote, are vertically integrated. So they're collecting batteries, they're shredding them, they're chemically processing them with off the shelf, very traditional technology and turning them back into battery materials. And we work with a lot of these folks because we see ourselves as really just the technology partner. And so we want to be able to help them process with an innovative, you know, much more efficient, low carbon technology. And we want to be able to process more than just batteries because unfortunately, even if we recycle 100% of lithium ion in the next, say, 10 years, it's not going to quite get us enough of this raw cobalt and nickel and other materials like copper that we need to suffice demand. And so what Encycle is doing is trying to pull from all the different industrial scrap resources that we have to so think catalysts from the oil and gas space are heavy in nickel. We are looking at the steel industry with the slag. We're look because that contains the nickel. We're looking at um, nickel um, alloy, scrap materials, all of these materials that go unrecycled that with our modular unique technology, we can go on site and process that into materials that can either go back into a battery or into other clean energy technology spaces. You referenced the modular system and the ability to actually physically place it next to where the work actually needs to take place, reducing emissions associated with shipping. Can you put it in context in terms of what are the emissions benefits? How big is the carbon benefit of this system? Absolutely. So we had a third-party consulting firm help us with this to, to verify that our emissions could be much, much lower. And, and it's really attributed to the way the technology works in that we use electricity to produce the chemicals that we need versus having them made from fossil and then shipped to site to be used. And so that's really where the bulk of our reduction comes from in emissions. And in terms of numbers, we are 44% cleaner than traditional hydrometallurgical processing that's used in recycling today. And then we can be up to 92% lower carbon emissions than the traditional mining route for nickel for laterite mining. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Can we talk about the economics here? We're at a point in history where people are definitely interested, businesses are interested in paying a premium for recycled content. But looking into the future, this will need to be cost competitive in order to get it at wide scale. Where do you see the cost competitiveness now compared to virgin materials and where do you see it going in the future? So when we started this business, we knew, right, because these centralized facilities have been around for decades, right, centuries in some cases. And we knew that we needed to at least be cost competitive or have the same essentially treatment charges for those familiar with the industry that a smelter would, because that's really what we're trying to replace here. So we are very proud to say that even in our first facility, we will be at cost with what smelting charges for treatment charges. And so this is a very cost competitive solution with the additional benefit of the carbon savings, right? So we're not even accounting for the premiums or other things that we might see that are coming out of the regulatory environment in Europe or the Inflation Reduction Act here in the US, right? We really wanted to to basically stand on our own two feet and show that we can essentially shrink what a centralized facility looks like, but have the same unit economics, right? Because one of the major issues of having a centralized facility here in the US is that we don't have large assets to pull from. So typically these smelters are set up next to a very large, I think 50 plus year mine to justify the capital expense to, to build one of these, which is typically in the billions of dollars. And we wanted to show that we could have the same unit economics, excuse me, with a modular system that can process a fraction of what these other facilities are built to handle, but then to be able to scale over time. So we really looked at other industries that have modular systems and tried to mimic that to grow with the battery recycling industry, for example, because we don't need something that can process 60,000 metric tons a year. We need something that can process about 5,000 metric tons a year. We don't want that stranded excess capacity 
capacity. Um, and so that's really where we think we have achieved what we've set out to do is showing that the unit economics work at this scale, as well as at a large scale if we were to go to a mining site. So you mentioned um, the first facilities and so on. So um, where are you on the commercialization journey? Where are you now? We have our first facility that will be uh, it's under commissioning right now. We're, we'll be up and running and producing nickel mixed hydroxide product, which is a nickel product that can be used in the battery industry and a variety of other nickel heavy industries. That will be running at the end of Q2 of 2024. So we're very excited. We'll be the first nickel refinery in the U.S. And so we'll be processing end of life materials at the facility and it's in Ohio. Wow. And um, what's coming up next aside of the new facilities? I saw um, in the press potentially a B round that you are working on. Yes. So so as a pre-revenue company, right, we're always fundraising. And so we are excited to be expanding in terms of projects. So we hope to deploy several other projects after this first Ohio facility is up and running, not just here in North America, but in Europe as well. And so we're in the process of, of looking and scouting for locations in Europe to start growing our business over there as well. So that's really the up- upcoming exciting things, I should say, uh, for Encycle. And one of the last things I want to do is do a bit of a definition game, because I find that as soon as you start to get into any industry, there's a lot of different terms, certainly a lot of different acronyms, but a lot of different terms that not everyone is familiar with. So can you start by explaining black mass? Why and what is it? Absolutely. I agree with you. There's (laughs) a lot of uh, interesting terminology in this space. So black mass is basically a powder um, you can think of it as the product of shredded batteries. So lithium-ion batteries come in, whether it's from an EV pack or it's from a cell phone or a laptop. It's dismantled in some capacity. It's then shredded and mechanically separated. And so the black mass is really the graphite from the from the anode side of the battery. And then you have, depending on what the chemistry is, you have the cobalt, the nickel, the manganese. You might have a little bit of copper in there. So it really, I mean, it's it's a, a very generic name in that it really does look like black mass. It looks like black powder. It's putting the name on the tin. The other exactly. the other um, terms that are used here, and you mentioned earlier, hydrometallurgy, which is one of the incumbent ways of actually going through this chemical process. Your company is using electro extraction. But what is pyrometallurgy? So pyrometallurgy is where they use heat. So as the the name suggests, they typically use very high temperatures and sometimes high pressures to really melt or burn a lot of these materials to separate out the metals from maybe the rest of the material. So for example, for black mass, you can essentially burn away the graphite and you'd be left with the metals. And so that's a typical method in which black mass is processed today. And is CCS technology used for something like pyrometallurgy? Are there other things going on that you're seeing as ways to decarbonize that are essentially maybe even competitors to your technology? I think we're seeing a lot of interesting technology come out because, again, as I mentioned before, this industry really hasn't seen innovation in many, many, many decades, if ever. And so I think a lot of folks are trying to figure out a way to, especially what we're doing is modularize the the system because they're realizing that, hey, the the waste that we're going after are just simply not, they're not all aggregated in one place, right? The transportation is a huge, huge limitation and you really have to get to large scale for these centralized facilities to operate profitably. And so you're seeing a lot of interesting plays on hydrometallurgy, so a lot of different new solvent extraction technologies, which is really the very, very end point where they use lots of solvents to pull out these materials in their purest form. You're seeing modularized versions of that. You're seeing some new takes on how we do the front end of hydrometallurgy, so the different acids and 
and, and combinations of acids that you can use to make this a cleaner process. And so again, I don't know if we necessarily see them as competitors because I think we will need all of these solutions to really decarbonize this entire industry because we think about our, our market as the metals industry for like cobalt and nickel at least today. And these are massive industries, right? And there's there's a lot of room for many players, um, but we hope to be the refining partner that helps with at least that first refining process, which is replacing the the pyro metallurgy of the smeltings I mentioned before. Whereas there'll be players downstream from us that will take the material that we produce and refine it even further. And so I think there's a place for all of us, I think, in this value chain. And I think that's how we're going to truly decarbonize is, is working together. Megan, it's so great to have you here today. And it's always exciting to talk to innovators about what's coming up next. We are all going to be watching EndCycle. And thank you for explaining the technology. Yes, thank you so much for having me on today. It's been great. And now on to our third and final interview with Tim Johnson, the co-founder and executive chairman of Lifecycle. Lifecycle specializes in lithium battery and resource recovery using their spoken hub facilities, which also create a secondary supply of battery grade metals. Tim, thank you very much for joining the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start at the beginning of your story. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came into the battery industry? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is I'm a mechanical engineer. And uh, and so I started out my life actually within the mining and metallurgical world. And I was very fortunate back in the late 2000s to, to get involved in a, the development of a lithium project. Actually in China, uh, it was the first fully continuous lithium carbonate plant that was built. And then on the back of that, we built a specialty lithium practice and so started working with clients and helping them develop lithium assets all over the world. So it was been you know a journey from, let's call it, you know, traditional mining and refining to today recycling, which is really what I focus on and, and taking the skill set from one and applying it to the other. So can you take us through how do we actually recycle batteries? What, what's the process? Absolutely. There's essentially two steps to, to recycling batteries today. When you're talking general terms, it's pre-processing and post-processing. And the pre-processing step is all about turning batteries, uh, all different forms of lithium-ion batteries, essentially into an isolated product, which we call black mass, which is a very unimaginative explanation of what the anode and cathode materials from within the lithium-ion batteries look like. We then take that forward into the post-processing step or the refining step, where we're taking the black mass and now we're converting it back into usable materials that can go back in into batteries uh, and there's a whole range of different technologies we as lifecycle have a bespoke set of technologies that we developed for these applications but there's a wide variety of technologies that exist out there in industry so what's that unique about kind of lifecycle approach what, what's unique about your ways of uh, recycling batteries So at our pre-processing facilities, which we call spokes, uh, we're able to process any form of lithium-ion battery, regardless of form factor or chemistry. And the key aspects of what we do at the pre-processing facilities, which is different to, to the rest of the industry, is that we're able to process them without having to discharge or disassemble them. And that's a really important fact when you're looking at how to scale these industries and how you go from processing kilograms of materials to thousands of tons of materials, which is what we do 
today. And we can do that because we developed a process called submerged shredding. And submerged shredding is a novel way of processing batteries in a water-based system. Uh, and what we're able to do is we're able to deal with the three characteristics that we're concerned about when processing lithium-ion batteries. One is we're able to mitigate the potential for fire. The second is that we can handle the energy that's released from the battery as being broken down in a safe way by cooling the system effectively. And then third, we're able to chemically treat the electrolyte, which is a potential harmful compound that exists within these lithium-ion batteries. And we do all of this without any thermal processing. Uh, we don't have any effluent wastewater discharge from, from the sites. You, know, you compare this to how lithium-ion batteries have been processed traditionally. Typically, you know, what would happen is that these materials would come to a facility, they would be discharged, dismantled, and then they'd go so, through some form of thermal processing. And one of the challenges that we identified and addressed was, well, with these thermal processes, you're effectively burning off the plastics and the electrolytes and the other organic compounds uh, within the battery. And if you think about well, why are we doing this in the first place, the reason why we're doing this in the first place is to support a more sustainable future. And we didn't see that as being congruent with the industry in which we were trying to help support and build. And that's why we went to our own pre-processing technology. When it came to the refining and the, the post-processing side of the business, what we realized there is that there is significant challenges with building and scaling up any sort of operation. And so the best thing that we could do was to take lessons and technologies that existed in the mining and refining world and then apply it to the recycling of lithium-ion batteries. So if you look at our hub process, our refining process, it's essentially a series of steps that are done in the traditional mining and refining world, but brought together in a novel way. And why novel? Because in our Earth's crust today, we don't find nickel, cobalt, and lithium coexisting in singular deposits. They're formed in different ways from a geological perspective. But they are processed using similar chemistries in different operations. And so we're able to bring the knowledge and understanding of how these two different segments exist, but bringing them together. And that's ultimately how we developed our refining technology. These are important innovations in what is likely to be a growing market. BNEF research would certainly point to the need for more batteries for stationary storage and for vehicles. So there's going to be a lot of batteries to be recycled. And what I want to know is with the innovations that you have come up with, how much growth do you expect seeing for this type of technology and this application? And basically, how big do you see this market getting? Yeah, I mean, we're just starting to scratch the surface. This decade of of growth is really being driven by the production of new cells and and new batteries that are going into particularly the electric vehicle and energy storage industries around the world. So you can see the recycling demand through to 2030 largely being associated with that. However, we're now into this phase where we're starting to see early generations of electric vehicles reach the end of their useful and practical lives as as vehicles. And now there's the opportunity to start to recycle those end of what we call end of life materials from these batteries. And so if we look forward, you know, we look at last cycle in 2030 and we say, okay, so Rochester, a hub in Rochester is able to process 35,000 tons per year of black mass. That's not going to mean a lot to a lot of people. You know, what that actually equates to is about 90,000 electric vehicles worth of battery materials. Uh, And so for us, you know, we say that that's probably around 10% 
20% of the total addressable market for North America by, by 2030. So even though it's a very large facility, the largest that's ever been built in, in the Western world, it's still relatively small when you fast forward just a few years. And then if you look at the size of the market by 2040, you know, it's once again, it's an order of magnitude or multiple order of magnitude bigger again, because now what we're seeing in the next decade is really this very fast growth of end-of-life materials that are coming into the market as what we've seen is the uprising of electric vehicles in the first half of this decade start to reach the end of their life in the next decade. And do you think there'll be a dominant technology approach to actually processing these batteries, or do you think that'll be a number of different approaches that are fit for purpose in specific regions? Yeah, and so I think that there's always going to be a variety. We see this in the base metal world as well. I wouldn't say that there's going to be one technology that uh, that trumps you know uh, another technology outright. Uh, what I would say is there's definitely trends, and uh, and what we see is the trend for particularly on the refining side is definitely towards what we call hydrometallurgical or the wet chemistry approach. And most of the new developments are really focused on using this style of technology or this family of technology in order to process black mass. On the pre-processing side, what we're starting to see is, I guess, a convergence into really three key technology groups. You have the life cycle, which developed the submerged shredding technology, which I was talking about. And you have the traditional groups, which will continue to, to thermally treat the ion batteries. And then you have a third group, which is focused on what we call inert shredding, which is effectively using an inert gas to reduce the atmosphere, reduce the oxygen, uh, within the system while they're processing the batteries. And I think those three technologies based on region, based on a number of different factors, will continue to to coexist in that pre-processing world. Let's talk a little bit about market conditions. It's 2023 has been a pretty turbulent year for some clean tech companies. And I want to know what you think the future holds in 2024 and beyond for clean tech innovators like Lifecycle. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, always a challenge of of being part of a revolutionary you know, movement, and uh, you know we've seen this in the lithium world, we'll, we've seen it in the clean tech world, and we'll continue to see this. Is there will be ebbs and flows uh, associated with the growth in in this industry. But one thing is for sure, I mean, if you distill it down to the, to the basics, is that we need to decarbonize uh, our economies as much as we possibly can. And electrification, you know, whether or not it's through electric vehicles or energy storage and with associated with renewable power generation, is a clear way to be able to start to address some of these challenges. And so for, for us, you know, we're strong believers that there, there's going to be continued growth you know, in this, this market. We are still seeing significant investments being made across the value chain that support the recycling industry, but also support the development of electric vehicles and, and energy storage systems. So 2024 for us, we see you know, as a year that will continue to, to press through and, uh, and continue to develop. We really see, and we've been talking about this for a long time, 2025 is almost a bit of a, a magical year in, in some regards for, for this industry because there is so much new production that is due to come online in 2025. And if you look forward, you know, even if some of that slips, there's still going to be a lot of new production coming to the market, which means new vehicles, which I think gets consumers excited about electric vehicles and the possibilities that, that exist around that. It's going to see increased demand for the materials that go into to making them on the 
cell level side, but then of course also all the raw materials associated with it. And then like anything, it, it, that anything that's manufacturing or consumer based, there's going to be the waste component. And that's where Lifecycle comes in to, to support uh, on the recycling side. So we're very excited about the developments over the next couple of years and beyond. Can I ask you, um, what have you learned from uh, your journey so far um, with Lifecycle and and in particular about the challenge of kind of moving from something that works in a lab to first of a kind commercial plant for climate tech? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, one of the things you have to be open to when you're going through any sort of development cycle is the opportunity to improve and continuously develop. Uh, I look at our pre-processing, our spoke technology. We started the company in 2016. In 2016, there was very, very little interest for recycling of lithium-ion batteries, but we did a lot of work going into 2017 and 2018, doing lab work, doing piloting, trying to understand the basic physical problems we were trying to solve. We then rolled out our first commercial plant in, in 2019 and subsequently in short order, our second commercial spoke processing facility. Today we have five around the world. And, and what we've seen is every time that we've rolled a new plant out, today we're on what we call the generation three technology of our commercial plants. We've made substantial improvements. And so I think that you know this is something that is really important for all the stakeholders associated with these new technologies And, and being associated with you know, from financing to public to regional and, and community stakeholders is that there is this evolution process and it's important that we embrace that process to ensure that we get the best possible outcome. And uh, we see that that's something that we've really done quite well as this life cycle. You look at what we're able to do today, we can process full electric vehicle battery packs at any state of charge. You know, that is something that we could have only have dreamt about when we rolled out our first commercial plant back in 2019. So we've come a long way and we've only been able to do that through this continuous improvement process. And from your experience, is there a balance between recycling batteries locally close to the clients and feedstock and so on versus like large facilities with economy of scale? What, what's the kind of ma- magic formula? Yeah, so, so we see that on the pre-processing side, on the spoke side, there is a significant benefit of having those facilities close to where the battery materials are being generated. Uh, and it's really driven by a couple of key factors. You know, first of all, it's quite expensive and uh, and there is a level of risk associated with the transportation of lithium-ion batteries. So if you can minimize that distance, you can reduce that cost and you can reduce that risk. And at the same time, from a processing plant perspective, the equipment that we're using, even at a, let's call it a regional level, is largely, we're very close to where sort of the max capacity of the equipment you know, that you can purchase without going fully customized is able to, to operate within. So you're not actually losing significant economies of scale on the pre-processing side. It differs, however, when you come to the, to the refining side, to the hub side of it for, for life cycle. And we see that it's really important at that point in time that you do have economies of scale, both from a technical perspective with equipment, but also just because of the, the fixed overhead and management of those style of assets, the operating costs associated with it. To be efficient, you need to have scale. And the benefit is, is that by the time we've put the battery materials through the spoke facilities and you've generated the black mass, black mass itself is a non-flammable, easy to transport material by comparison to, to a battery. So you've now dealt with the risk factor. It's significantly cheaper to, to move that material. And so therefore, you've dealt with the risks, you've dealt with the costs, and you're just putting the scale ultimately where it needs to be. And that's on the refining or the hub side of the project. 
we're going to keep our eyes looking ahead to what the market has in store from 2025 and beyond. And Tim, thank you so much for sharing your views today and for telling us a little bit more about Lifecycle. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Benji. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So now that we've heard from three of the winners of the 2023 Pioneers Challenge, let's talk about next year and let's close off our show today by going through the different challenges for the 2024 Pioneers program. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Super excited about 2024 challenges. The first one is relieving bottlenecks in deployment of clean power. We then have um, the really um, big challenge around decarbonization of building. And the third one is around sustainable fuels. So um, we'll have the winners uh, announced later in spring. And we are very excited about um, the application we got and the process. We'll be back here on Switched On with some of those winners, I'm sure. Thanks for joining today. Thank you for inviting me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.